0: This is uh, part two of my reading of the very, very important document that was put together in 1942 called the Europäische Wirtschaftsgemeinschaft, put together by uh, German uh, high-ranking people in the Third Reich, economists, lecturers, people of industry and uh, bankers. And this is episode two, which is by Walter Funk, who was the Reich's economic minister and president of the German Reichsbank. His lecture was titled, The Economic Face of the New Europe. This was written in 1942, by the way. Okay, starting now. Today, the peoples of Europe are at a turning point in their fate. Without any hint of exaggeration, one can say that the problems which are pressing in this war for a solution have secular significance. What sense could the blood spill have which the Allies of Europe joined together with the combined forces of the great German Reich are prepared to make, if not that of creating once and for all a sound foundation for a really social life order? The call and warning is issued to the politician, the scientist, the economist, from the frontline fighters to prepare the great task of attaining peace for the future, even in the midst of war. Subheading is real and false economic freedom. To sum up the theme in one sentence, I would say that the economic face of the new Europe will have two identifiable traits, which are already being formed in the fire of war. They are work for the community and economic freedom. Of course, not the sort of economic freedom that is embodied in capitalism and leads to this strange pact between plutocracy and Bolshevism. The peoples of Europe have heard the big promise of freedom in the liberal capitalist economy. Today. It is sinking in wretchedness, blood, and ruins. What did not the liberalist idea of freedom promise? According to that theory of economics, life develops most fully if all the individuals are allowed to pursue their own self-interest without restriction. The state can hand over the harmonious development of the economy to the forces of competition, which each individual should exploit for his own self-interest. Regarding international trade, One expects that given full freedom, competition would ensure that each country produces those goods best according to its natural production conditions. According to the theory, each nation buys on the world market where they are cheapest and sells its own products with relatively high margins, thanks to its natural conditions, allowing the lowest costs. Consumers can, in theory, get a supply of goods at the lowest cost. Businessmen can use their skills freely, and workers can find work wherever they find the highest wage. The situation that was sought after, social harmony, seemed to be most achievable this way. So much for theory. But what happened in practice? Europe's population grew in the 19th century, i.e. in the springtime of liberalism, from 180 million to 450 million capita, and people on average could clothe and feed themselves better and provide themselves with more goods than before. All the same, liberalism can claim to have driven forward technical progress a long way due to its principle of unrestricted profit-seeking. Also, it can be rightly maintained that the, liberalist, the liberal capitalist econo- economic way for decades proved to be capable of existing right up to World War I, despite the increasing numbers of defects. Free trade was not, in fact, carried out without restrictions. But the duty agreements on the basis of maximum favour barely affected trade. Flows of gold and capital were never restricted, nor was the movement of labour subject to any notable restriction the international gold standard which england manipulated almost unnoticed enabled an easy movement of money the value of gold followed interest rates and goods followed the world price as long as the participants were prepared to observe the complicated rules of the game economic harmony really seemed to exist if we recall the economic conditions that existed pre world war 1 all this supposed harmony did was to give enough elbow room to those powers ranged against one another. Freedom to expand, it seems, was the only thing then that prevented earlier confrontation between the powers. The vast expanse of land overseas constantly offered new areas of discovery. Europe's infinite source of labor was available not only as the workforce for it, but also the buyer of everything produced there. Constantly improving technology offered a constant flow of possibilities for development, hitherto unknown. Despite the apparent equal opportunities there, the individual people were not able to gain equal advantage from the system, just as the individual classes of society were unable to. The English moral philosophy of Hobbes and Hume, which was tinged with a shot of Jewish spirit from David Ricardo, has proved to be an extraordinarily safe and imperceptibly effective means for justifying and safeguarding the British world superiority. In the system's early heyday, the English had the most advanced industry. They entered the race with the biggest price advantage. Added to that, they had the biggest commercial and naval fleet in the world, which enabled them to get started in world trade in such a big way. Thus, their economic and political power grew. Each concentration of trade opened the way for new profit. England became the paymaster of the world, as well as the banker, the manufacturer, the trader, transporter, and last but not least, the policeman of the world. Just look at the states of continental Europe. Together, they could only derive small advantages from this economic system. Even the large nations were forced to suffer from the real and extended competitive advantage of England. The small nations just existed to increase England's wealth and had to be content with a few crumbs from England's table. Before World War One, the Southeast European states were so peripheral for world trade, although they were no worse place than many overseas exporting nations. However, they could not come into their own. Thus, agricultural technology and transport routes were not advanced by the developments happening elsewhere in the world economy. Technical backwardness occurred there while the newly productive nations grew, forcing down the standard of living. There were no buyers who could constantly buy more and more goods at stable prices, and which was supposed to lead to investment in new machinery and equipment that improves life. After World War One, the capitalist world powers consciously left these states in their economic backwardness, so they remained politically dependent. It was our deliberate and compassionate trade policy that recently brought about a fundamental change, and in fact, their trade policy has also changed favourably over recent years. These states were the first testing ground for our economic and political principles. We can rightly say that the use of these methods was of great mutual benefit for both sides and became a sound basis of coexistence. The debt account of the British capitalist era was considerably larger. Signs of serious economic damage caused by the effects of the laissez-faire system and free trade principle became apparent among all those connected with it, both the favoured ones and the stepchildren of the liberal economic order. Symptoms of malaise were the same everywhere. Agriculture in the industrial nations was incapable of asserting itself confronted with the interests of industry, trade, bank and stock exchange. The freedom to feed disappeared. The position of farmers became wretched. The population fled from the countryside to the city and abroad. The very top class layers of bankers, industrialists and speculators could amass huge wealth and, with it, create a dangerous power base beyond the state because money bought everything, especially public opinion. On the other side, the rank of the industrial proletariat swelled constantly and was driven by increasing dissatisfaction with pseudo-socialist Marxism and communism. The prevailing line at the time, quote, get rich regardless of the means, close quote, was probably the reason why all these symptoms failed to gain sufficient attention and clouded over the sight of the facts. Certainly, liberalism was a system for, quote, freedom. He who could no longer find work or food in his local area had the freedom to emigrate. And if the economy of a nation was depressed, this nation had the freedom to run up debts with England. But this type of freedom was of too poor moral foundation to have been of any real substance. The type of gift made by the English economic philosophers to mankind with their output of ideas about freedom only became obvious as the economic area around individuals and nations became smaller. And as the last reserves of colonial war materials were distributed and the fight for sales markets intensified, the liberist, liberalist system that had weaved its way into big time capitalism then lost its necessary flexibility due to cartelization, pooling, monopoly formation, and the rising fixed costs for industry. Conflicting interests started to collide at full speed with one another because they were driven by egotism and no longer sought ways to avoid problems. How many wars have been waged due to this attitude, this greed, which has wrecked the lives of so many? For example, there were the Spanish-Cuban Wars that started in 1868, and supported by the Cuban speculators and North American sugar syndicate, the war between Chile and Peru was all about the saltpetre fields. To finance this war, Chile took loans that were guaranteed by European bankers, who insured themselves with the gains to be made from working these fields. England's Boer War was supposedly a colonial war, but it was all too conspicuous how much interest was shown by the gold mine syndicate of Mr Cecil Rhodes and those of the London Stock Exchange in the war's outbreak and continuation. No wonder everyone called it the war between the Stock Exchange and the Boer. The Russo-Japanese War 1904-1905 was caused by the interests of Russian capital in Manchuria and Korea. Finally, the First World War was the peak of the capitalist economic system, but also the start of its demise. Since World War I, Europe's people have been through a generation of extremely hard lessons, which we all know now, and they sooner or later realise that the freedom ideal of the past era was false and perishable. War, inflation, tough economic crises, hunger and unemployment have hammered it into people that economic sense lies in the fulfillment of a social task, not in self-interest and selfish profiteering. No wonder then that those people of Central Europe who suffered most under the whip of an unsocial system were first to set up a different freedom ideal of higher morality. We can now see the new ideal of real economic freedom in the safeguarding of food and raw material reserves, the liberation of the economy from international finance interests and dependence on economic cycles, as well as in the subjugation of the individual to the primacy of the economy. The next subheading is cooperation in continental Europe. The authoritarian governments of Germany and Italy gave their people the task, first of all, to invest their efforts in voluntary cooperation under the State Directive of the National Welfare. Thus, they protected their economy from exploitation by international finance powers. The fight for the nation's food and raw material freedom is now a thing of the past the last world war already taught the people that it is unwise to leave their fate to excessive international division of labour. At the time, the industrial nations were ploughing the last square metre of uncultivated land. The mainly agricultural-based countries made haste to become self-sufficient in industrial goods by forcing through industrialization. In both cases, the result was not satisfactory. In particular, Those industries of small European nations prolonged their unpleasant and for the majority costly existence in the post-war period by standing behind protective duties. They devoured subsidies, unnecessarily reinforced the international battle between competitors, raised the cost of living of their people and ended up in the mess of the world economic crisis simply because natural reserves were drying up everywhere. European people could have recognised long ago that they share a common fate with only one logical consequence, which is European cooperation. Politically though, the time then was not yet ready for that. The victorious nations of World War I deliberately placed so much dynamite in Europe with the Paris Agreements that it was not possible to consider a constructive, idealistic plan. The only pioneering work possible was, for example, the deliberate promotion of economic relationships in Germany and the Southeast. First, the Fascist and then the National Socialist Revolution created the foundation for a new political era and social order in Europe. Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler, between them, gave Europe the chance to become truly European. Now the time is finally coming when the people of Europe can continue their path towards cooperation as they rightly strive for economic security. After World War II, there will be no more tension and grounds for conflict in Europe, which might justify useless isolation. The economic system will be without the German it, such as the Anglo-American system, which has caused dramatic disagreements between people. No European nation can attain alone for itself that highest level of economic freedom that meets all of society's demands, as it constantly relies on the production strengths of its nearest and furthest European neighbours. The blockading around Europe organised by our foe today shows clearly just how much individual states are bound together for better or for worse. In a large economic area, a community sharing the same fate holds the nations together. This area, though, is capable of feeding, clothing, and providing them with all the necessary goods in sufficient quantities, more so when the area also includes the East European areas that surround it. Until now, these areas were beyond the reach of the historic creative forces of our continent. The European Economic Area of the future will be untouched by blockades, so no one will easily dare to attack it. Recently, I declared that there would be no longer any sense in economic wars. I'm just going to pause here for a moment, just to see. Okay. Just checking the time. The idea of an enlarged area Has been subject to a degree of discrimination, although it was barely discussed in a serious way. Even the politicians belonging to the English plutocratic system suddenly adopted the idea. They wrote their ideas about large economic areas, which were not and really never should have been classed as ideas. Power and political aim simply lay at the root of it all. Nonetheless, The idea of an enlarged living area proved to be capable of standing the test of time. I can see nothing that might seriously stand in its way, as the creation of large economic areas follows a natural law of development. I have absolutely no intention of contributing to the economic teaching about the stages of economic development, but I just want to draw attention over towards an economic and historical process which shows a strong resemblance to how things are developing today. About a hundred years ago, a German economic entity started to be formed out of many regional economies. As unification of the country was still way out of the question, economic treaties started to develop, finally reaching its peak in 1843 with the German, Zollverein, otherwise known as the customs union, and bringing with it huge economic advances. What did the situation look like before? Anyone passing through Germany travelled on poor roads and had to pay countless duties and tolls on his way through dozens of states. Each of these states had its own sovereignty, financial system and currency, attempting to form something like its own independent economy. Those in charge then simply could not understand that their great neighbours, England and France, had advanced because they had created an economic area for themselves, which corresponded to the level of technology and transport reached at the time. Friedrich List, the great proponent of Germany's economic union, criticised the situation at that time saying, the chances for German industry to rise up would be immense if each factory owner could choose from a pool of 30 million people. Mining, agriculture and cattle rearing could really take off if each branch of production could take its natural course. Close quote. One of the decisive forces which the small nation ideal finally had to bow to was the revolutionising effect on the economy and transport of technical progress, especially the steam engine. If we say Europe now, if we say Europe now instead of Germany, then we come naturally to a similar, if not identical, conclusion from a purely economic perspective. Once again, it is the economic and technical progress which pushes inexorably, inexorably to the formation of large continental economic areas. Today, technology offers possibilities which cannot be fully utilized by individual national economies. Nations borders have been brought close together by the increased speed of trains, the extension of the road network and waterways, the transcontinental energy supply, which offers so much potential, and above all the airplane. Outside Europe, huge economic areas are already or are in the process of being formed from a combination of these factors. For its own good, Europe has to be dragged out of its romanticized backwardness. The difficulties of course of a European Economic Union are larger than those that had to be overcome by the German Customs Union. The means will be difficult, And more complicated, and it certainly will not be achieved just through a customs union. Nonetheless, there will be a European economy entity because its time has come. It's the end of that part. I'm just going to check. Um, Sorry, I've just. where I am on the time frame, okay. Okay, so we now are on another subtitle. Europe's, the subtitle is Europe's Resources and Completion. So he's talking about Europe, which obviously doesn't include England. Because Europe is continental, the mainland. And that's probably what has been our mental downfall in thinking that we are European. Anyway, sorry, I'm digressed now. So, back to the lecture Europe's resources and completion. If one recalls the natural resource of our continent, it becomes obvious that Europe is actually an economic area capable of meeting most requirements. I'm not going to go into details here, but just touch on some basic points. First of all, excluding the erstwhile Soviet Russian areas, our continent produces sufficient quantities of the essential industrial materials, i.e. coal, iron, and aluminium. Looking at the agriculture resources available, there is also plenty of food available. Many people may think it sounds improbable that in 1939, around 46. 4 million million tonnes of wheat and 24.8 million tonnes of rye grew on European soil. These figures again exclude the production of the Soviet Union, but we know for sure that 10 million tonnes of cereal were produced there. This figure could be much more if the means of production there were brought in line with the new technology. Wherever European soil has been treated all too badly by nature, The imagination of its people has managed to seek and find new solutions. I recall those areas in which Germany has excelled, such as rayon, oil production from coal and synthetic rubber. What we lack will be secured through this war in the east of Europe. Even today we have a large and valuable part of Soviet Russia in our possession and we are directing all our energy into opening up this area so rich in raw materials. Later, We will have the task of creating the political shape of the eastern area, but firstly the people will have to be adopted into the European economic system. They too stand to profit from the good deeds done by European civilisation. The major tasks we need to solve are truly European tasks. Even today, Europe looks eastwards and the huge arsenal of Soviet weapons gives an idea of just how much natural reserves that that area can yield. If the rich soil there can be rendered usable with the modern tools of Europe's food agriculture technology, then Europe will definitely not be touched by blockades. In addition, the tropical colonies of Africa will offer us all those luxuries that are unnecessary for survival, but which make life pleasant and ought not to be withheld from a people with a high standard of living. And finally, we will have global trade, which will help to ensure that misunderstandings no longer arise. But it will look different to trade system, which degenerated into utter confusion and simply enabled a few powers to gain a position of world superiority. The economic problems in East Europe will obviously not just suddenly be solved by us securing these areas and raw material reserves. However, we have put together statistics showing a reasonable amount of economic capacity which has yet to be put into practice. We have to mobilize every available raw material and energy in the economy of Europe. This is the task of the new economic order facing us now. Naturally, a new order that is perfect cannot be created straight away. But, over the years, it will be possible to match supply and demand in the entire European area to a remarkable degree. Then, according to the plan, it will be possible to put the finishing touches to everything, and we will get on with the task of opening up hitherto neglected areas of production. For example, I am thinking about how we can successfully achieve much higher yields, and we will continue to do so by a more intensive use of the countryside. Those areas of Europe that are still backward have to be encouraged to bring about an intensive economic system. The industrialization of these areas will undoubtedly continue, but with the difference that each nation will create its own industry, which best suits its own natural production conditions, as well as meeting the needs of the European market. Already detailed negotiations of the various European nations have taken place along these lines. We will one day tackle the problem of the rationalization of the European economy, And I believe that after consolidation, we will achieve production increases that are unimaginable today. I'm going to bring this uh, episode to a close, and I will have to continue uh, Funk's lecture on the next episode. And just to remind you, I'm reading the German, the Nazi plan for the European economic community or in German it is the Europäische Wirtschaftsgemeinschaft very interesting so this is the end of episode two thank you for listening